This is the AMA Los Angeles podcast. Are you ready? Welcome to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. I'm Joel Metzger. We are in the offices, the luxurious offices of the Writers Guild of America West. And my guest today is Valerie Alexander, a renowned expert on happiness and inclusion. She is the founder and CEO of Goalkeeper Media, a tech company that builds communication bots to amplify happiness. She's also the author of the Amazon number one seller, Happiness is a Second Language, and a recognized speaker on the topics of personal happiness in the workplace and the advancement of women. And full disclosure, an old friend of mine. Welcome, Valerie. Hi, Joel. So gender in the work place is very much on everyone's mind right now. We're in the wake of Harvey Weinstein and Me Too and the awards coming up. That's going to be really interesting. And we just had huge marches all over the country. Your research in evolutionary biology gives a perspective that's a little different from what we often think of kind of reflexively as male domination, male-dominated workplace. Right. It's true. There, There's a lot of different elements to gender equality in the workplace. There is a real good wave of change happening right now in concerning the areas of sexual harassment and the things that women have been subject to. That is not where I do my work. So I don't really want to talk in that area too much because I think there's so many areas to address. When you're talking about equality in the workplace for women, there is the sexual component to it where women have to be safe and protected within their workplaces. But there's a whole other component to it just in how women's work is recognized and rewarded, how women are recruited, how they're retained, how women can achieve equality just by doing their work. Because because there's an enormous uphill battle working just against that. And it has to do with not the workplace being male-dominated, but with the workplace being male-designed. Men built the system, and they built a system that rewards their natural instincts. Well, let's talk about the natural instincts. What sure. was it? Describe the workplace two million years ago. <laughs> the humans have been around for about seven million years. Um, the who we are, Homo sapiens, or actually technically Homo sapiens sapien, have been around between 200,000 and 400,000 years. But we are the descendants of the first hominids, Homo habilis, the first to walk on two feet and not be covered with fur. And hobilis represented a giant leap forward in evolution. Uh, they did all kinds of cool things. They s- spoke languages. They started living in tribes. Primarily, though, they built tools. And not just they used tools. All kinds of animals use A monkey will strip the leaves off a branch and use it as a stick. But they were the first to take a rock and tie it to a stick and make it into a hammer. Or better yet, sharpen that rock and tie it to a stick and make it into a spear. And when you have a spear, you can hunt bigger animals. And when you can hunt bigger animals, you need more people. That's why they began living in tribes. That's why they developed language. So when you have more people and you're living in a tribe, you now have a new survival concern. It's not just the survival of the individual or the survival of your own offspring. It's the survival of the whole tribe. And survival, that means the biological definition of survival. 
biologically you survive if you live long enough to reproduce and you keep your offspring alive until they reach reproductive age, not necessarily till they reproduce. So I always tell people, if you've had children and they've made it through puberty, congratulations, you have survived. <laughs> but what happened with the Homo hom the first hominids, and hobolus in particular, when they started living in tribes and they needed more people, and they were concerned with, with the survival of the tribe, they pretty quickly figured out, don't let the women die. And what is that? Women are more biologically valuable to the survival of a tribe. If your tribe has 10 men and 10 women and 10 men go off and fight in a war and only two come back, your tribe survives. Two, yeah. The two men can mate with the 10 remaining women. That's right. So two, two men can effectively reproduce a tribe if they have 10 women, and happily. Of course. But if your tribe has 10 men and 10 women and 10 women go off and fight in a war and only two come back, what happens? You can't, re you can't, they can't keep up. They yeah. Can't, they, they can't produce that many children. There's no way that they could reproduce the tribe. Yeah. So the tribes that survived, which are the ones we all descended from, were the ones that pretty quickly figured out, don't let the women die. Right. So the way they did that is they sent the men off to do everything that would cause instant death. The early division of labor. Exactly. They had a division of labor. If it caused instant death, men did it, which was hunting for big meat and protecting the cave. That's what the men did. They hunted for the big meat. They protected the cave. The women stayed back at the cave and did absolutely everything else. Every single other task was done by women. They sewed the loincloths. They skinned the animals. They cooked the food. They tended to the elderly. They took care of the sick. They raised the children. They fished. They foraged. They engaged in early stages of agriculture. If it didn't cause instant death, women did it. And that all happened about two million years ago. That number is very interesting in the world of evolutionary biology because something else happened two million years ago, and that is our brain began tripling in size. Okay. So two million years ago, the human brain was about the size of a meatball, and now it's small head of cauliflower. And it didn't just blow up, it didn't just go, you know, expand continuously. What it did, it is added compartments. Because we were living in tribes, we had all kinds of new requirements in life. That's where language came from. And one of the compartments we added was the prefrontal cortex. In fact, almost all of the growth took place in the prefrontal cortex or the frontal lobe, which is what houses our executive functions. So emotions or control of emotions. Basic emotions like fight or flight comes from the amygdala. That's the most ancient part of the brain. But complex emotions are housed in the prefrontal cortex along with social interaction, decision making. This is the baby part of our brain. And this is the key point to remember when thinking about evolutionary biology and its impact on gender. The part of our brain that controls emotions, social interaction, and decision-making did not exist until after our survival depended on a different set of skills. After the men who survived, meaning most likely to pass their genes on to the next generation, were the ones who succeeded at hunting and combat, 
and the women who were most likely to pass their genes on to the next generation and have that generation survive were the ones who succeeded at the multitasking, at the consensus building, at the everything else of it all, primarily keeping the offspring of the tribe alive. So a lot of the instincts we have as men or as women actually predate the prefrontal cortex. Yes. It took about 1.2 million years for the prefrontal cortex to come into existence, and that was 1.2 million years of the offspring that survived being the offspring of the people who had these certain skill sets. We know brain activity is hereditary. We know that from breeding instincts into dogs. I, my dog is a German Shepherd. She is more than 100 generations removed from the original Shepherds in Germany that were used to create her breed. And yet, when we put her in a pen with sheep, it was less than 30 seconds before she started herding. She just by instinct. And her, my, her, she's her best friend. Okay, my dog has a best friend. I live in Los Angeles and don't have children. So Same my way. Same yeah. Here. So my dog has a best friend. My dog's best friend is a golden retriever. That dog retrieves by instinct. We had to train our dog to go get a ball and bring it back. Golden retriever does that automatically. A labrador is going to dive into water and go get something and bring it back without having to be taught because brain activity is hereditary. The animal that exhibits that trait is the one that we breed. The animal that doesn't exhibit that trait doesn't reproduce. We've been doing it with dogs for about 10,000 years. We've been doing it with humans for about 2 million years. And so what happened is the men who were most likely to pass their genes on to the next generation, the ones who succeeded at hunting and combat, were developing a skill set based on what will cause you to succeed in hunting and combat, quick decision making. You didn't have three minutes to decide whether you were going to throw the spear or not. You didn't even have three seconds sometimes. It's like really, really uh, fast uh, threat assessment and and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Also, men didn't only throw the spear when they were 100% sure they were going to hit. If they did that, they'd never throw the spear. But then they wouldn't like throw the spear every single time they saw an animal just throw a spear because then they were just likely to lose their spear. So... The skill set that developed in there was risk assessment, being able to see an uncertain situation, decide your probability of success, and act immediately. That's an instinct. That is an instinct that men naturally possess. Women were responsible for the survival of the offspring of the tribe. We were highly risk averse. There was no reason to take a risk because a child might die. And the women were more valuable anyway. It, yes. <laughs> so, so the women who were most likely to pass their genes on the next generation were the ones who could build consensus around a campfire, who could make sure there was inclusion within the group, and who were anti-risk. Women made sure they had all the facts before making a decision. All the consensus, that's, that, that's what Brissendine called tend and defend, or t- tend and befriend, isn't, isn't that? The, yeah, there's... A lot more requirements of bonding for women in our survival instinct. Um, There's a lot more competition among men. Again, go back to that hunting for big meat. You want your spear to be the one that brings down the woolly mammoth. Why? Because you get more to eat. That's your woolly mammoth. Yeah, you get more to eat. Your kids get more to eat, which means they're more likely to survive, which means they're more likely to pass their genes on to the next generation. I I was doing a talk on this at a college campus, and when I got to this point, I said, why do you want to be the one 
to bring down the woolly mammoth, a kid in the class said, because you get all the women. <laughs> and it's the first time anyone ever said that. It was really funny. And then I stopped and thought about it. Well, yeah. yeah. If you get all the women. You're the big provider. You're more likely to pass your genes on to the next generation. Yeah. And so this skill set that men were developing, this you know quick decision-making, risk, taking risks, um, having the brain be completely at rest when not in use. <laughs> why, why would they do that? <laughs> I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but 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 what's the advantage there? If you're sitting behind a rock for two days waiting for the saber-toothed tiger to wander by, you cannot be making a to-do list. Did you see the movie Wonder Woman? I did not. There's trench warfare in it, and they get to the trench, and no spoilers here, but they get to the trench, and they say the first thing they say to the soldiers, how long you've been there, and one of the soldiers says nine months. Nine months in a trench. And this was before internet. Right. You know, these guys had to quiet their minds for nine months or they would have lost them. Yeah. And so the male brain has the ability, that is a survival skill, it has the ability to shut itself down when not immediately in use. Women's brains didn't do that. We were constantly multitasking. There was always something to do, and at all times they had to be aware of whether the children were surviving or not. But we don't understand that that's a survival skill for men. We don't understand that means that if we need him to kill a saber-toothed tiger in an instant, he could do it. Right. It, it. My favorite question to ask, if a man and a woman are alone in a room together and nothing is happening, what is the worst thing she can ask him? What are you thinking about? Yes. I have done this presentation in over 100 places, companies, conferences, universities, and I've never had an audience miss that question. <laughs> Everybody gets well, it instantly. He's thinking instantly. about the woolly mammoth, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> um, the answer is nothing. And that's fine. Like I said, it means if we need him to kill a saber-toothed tiger, he can do it. Right. That all enabled the survival of the tribe for two million years. But about 20,000 years ago, something else happened. What was that? <laughs> well, it used to be that a tribe with meat would go out and kill everyone else they knew. They'd kill the tribe with vegetables, they'd kill the tribe with salt, you know, they'd kill the tribe with wood, whatever. And then about 20,000 years ago, I'm imagining a scene something like this took place. A tribe with meat showed up to kill a tribe with salt, because they needed the salt to preserve the meat. And someone in the tribe with salt probably said, hey, guys, hi, um, you know what? You could kill a bunch of us, we could kill a bunch of you, everyone will be dead and you'll get our salt. Or, you know, you could just give us a, some meat and we'll give you some salt. So commerce was born. Commerce was born. And that happened 20,000 years ago. And as combat between tribes evolved into commerce between tribes, because men were the only ones leaving the caves, men were only encountering other men. So they were designing the entire system of commerce, and they were designing the system of commerce based on those natural male instincts, based on the definition of leadership in hunting and combat, which is quick decision-making, confidence, taking risks, and Women have only really been meaningfully participating in commerce for about a hundred years at most. So as combat evolved into commerce, and that was all sort of designed around the male instincts, 
um, and that's the system that we're working in now. So what can, what can women do when they're bringing these, this other set of, of skills and instincts? It's really important that women look at what gets rewarded in their workplace. Now, I never say behave like men. We give up way too much value if we start trying to behave like men. And if you're a company, make sure you're not holding women to that standard. If your team has five white guys from Harvard and you hire a black woman from Howard, make sure you get the value of that hire by not forcing her to behave like a white guy from Harvard in order to advance in her career acknowledge the different skills that everybody is bringing. But for women, if you're going to get rewarded in your workplace, there are some small adaptations that we can make to display the traits that get rewarded. The first is quick decision-making. This is throwing the spear. I throw the spear. <laughs> I, I don't, don't overthink the spear. Yes. <laughs> the funny thing is I did this talk for a law firm for men and women, and it turns out one of the male associates had a bigger problem with this and his boss the next morning went into his office and wrote on his whiteboard throw the mm. effing spear <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and he used the whole word yeah um, that's funny so quick decision making comes down to not being afraid to give an answer whether you're right or not and that's a really tricky place for women to be and whether you're not a hundred percent a hundred and ten percent sure you're right or right. not. Right. First off, I will say, if you're a woman and you're eighty percent sure you're right, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Just give the answer. Yeah. But this was a lesson I had to learn the hard way when I was practicing law. I had a client that I inherited from a previous attorney. He had given them terrible legal service. It took months for me to unpack everything he had done wrong, and most of that's time you can't bill for. No client wants to see fixed previous attorney's mess right. on their bill. So after months, they were ready for another financing event, which is the fun stuff if you're a securities lawyer. You want to raise money for your clients. That's what you love doing. And right when we were on the verge of that, the partner I worked for came into my office and said, I just got off the phone with the CEO. They asked for a different associate. They don't like you. They miss Rob. The, old, the guy you inherited yeah, from. the guy. And I said, but Rob gave them terrible legal service. And he said, yeah, but when they called Rob, he gave him an answer. And when they call you, you say, I'll look that up and get back to you. Mm. And I said, but Rob was wrong most of the time. And he said, doesn't matter. When a client calls, it's because they want an answer. Give them one. Mm. And he turned and walked out of my office. And I sat there thinking that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. Mm. Right. Well, flash forward four years, and I was the VP of business development at a startup, and I got to experience that call from the other side of it. And I got to see how frustrating it is when I called the lawyer and asked for an answer and didn't get one. And especially for most companies, by the time they call the lawyer, there's a lot of people who want that answer and don't know it because calling your lawyer is expensive. And they don't do it unless there's a need. And when I say, I don't know, I'll get back to you, on their side, the person who called me has to go tell her boss, oh, the lawyer doesn't know, she'll get back to me. And that person has to tell someone else, oh, the lawyer doesn't know, she'll call us back. And that person might have to tell the CEO, our lawyer doesn't know, um, but she'll give us an answer at some point. And now 
Everyone in their chain of command has disappointed the person they answer to, and they don't even have an answer. They might hear a bad answer from me and have to disappoint them all over again. And worse, and this is why I think the client in this situation asked for a different associate, there's now four or five people over in that client who just heard the lawyer doesn't know. Right, right. And that gets reinforced over and over every time. And so after my partner came in and said, when a client calls, give them an answer, I taught myself how to do risk assessment. So when I got the phone call that said, hey, can we give stock as our Christmas bonuses this year? Did a quick risk assessment. I said, well, it's October, so chances are they're not doing it tomorrow. And it's a probably good good bet that they want the answer to be yes. So yes, yes. and hung up. And then I went and looked it up. That's the part Rob had never done. Right, the due diligence. And in that exact situation, I went and looked it up and oops, they couldn't do that. So now I had some important steps to take. The first thing I had to do, who do I need to call? Who actually needs this answer? I figured out who it was. So then I'm not calling every layer of person and having them all say, oh, she was wrong. Right, right. And I called that person and I said, hi, I looked into your stock option issue a little further. It turns out you don't have enough authorized shares in the plan to do that, but I wrote up a quick board approval for that. I can send it over to you to do a mailing. We can do a more board mailing for you, or there's actually enough time for you to do it at the next board meeting if you want, and I'll send it over. And he said, oh, we'll do it at the next board meeting. I said, great, I'll shoot it right to you. And I put it in the mail. So, in, so. So the actionable is, instead of saying, I fucked up, you say, I found a problem. Here's the solution. Yep. You never say, I was wrong. You say, you have a problem, but I fixed it for you. It's so funny because that actually happened to me about a month ago. Okay, <laughs> I, go. What? I was, I was, oh, we were we were filming this thing, and I um, I double punched the uh, recorder, and I didn't re- get, I didn't get the sound on the guy who was talking. We were, it was all run and gun stuff, and I realized it in time, and I we tracked him down, and we we did it again. But I knew the client was going to wonder, like, well, why wasn't he over here? Why why was why was he being filmed in a different place? So, by instinct, I suppose male instinct, yeah. I. I admitted I had made the mistake, but I phrased it completely as, here's a problem I found. Thank God I was checking the files as we went along, and I took action and re-recorded over here. That's why he's in a different place. So it was basically, I found a problem, and I here's the solution that I offered. But it, I didn't even think about it. It was just... Right. It's just how you behave. And it's because the workplace was designed to reward your instincts. You're already swimming in the current with the workplace. It's already designed to acknowledge leadership as quick decision making and reward taking risk and all the things to your instinct. And when you're swimming in the current, you're thinking, I'm a pretty good swimmer. And when you're always swimming against the current, you start looking over at the person swimming in the current and you're thinking, damn, that guy's a good swimmer. I wish I could swim like that. And the thing women need to remember is if you're always swimming against the current, you're becoming a really strong swimmer. And companies need to realize that too. They need to look at their women who have succeeded and say, wow, they have accomplished a lot. They have you know, earned respect when they were not given the benefit of the doubt. 
They've had to fight to be listened to in every room they were in. And if companies start acknowledging the accomplishment of where women are, they're going to start rewarding their female executives a lot higher. And that's really important. So a big part of it is if you are wrong, fix the problem and move on. Don't go around announcing to everybody you were wrong. In the situation with my client and their stock options, nobody on their side of it is thinking, oh, she got it wrong. She messed up. They, they weren't even thinking about it again. And I did this talk at a large finance company. And one of the women in the room who ran their legal department said, I'm sorry, please don't be telling our lawyers they should be winging it when they don't know the right answer. And I had been referred to her by their outside attorney because I'd spoken at their <laughs> law firm. And yeah. I told the outside attorney that she said that. And she's like, are you kidding? If I told that woman, I don't know, I have to call you back, she'd be so mad. <laughs> and, and I ask this all the time to just to pe for people to understand the actual workplace dynamic. I say, if you have someone, an outside contractor or someone in your own department, that you call them 10 times and 10 times they say, I don't know, let me get back to you. And you have someone else and you call them 10 times and 10 times they give you an answer. And twice they call you back and say, let me adjust that. Who are you calling? Yeah, it's obvious. It's, and when you think about it that way, it takes a lot of intestinal fortitude to give an answer in the face of incomplete information when that is not your natural instinct. Yeah, I heard a great quote on another podcast the other day. This guy says, uh, yeah, you know, just remember your gut is only right 100% of the time. Because <laughs> 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 you know? we, um, we do tend to overthink everything. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah. Well, also, I, at one of the law firms where I spoke, they, um, they were telling me that they had just had a situation where an attorney, a male attorney, who lasted a really long time and was really not competent, finally, they finally got rid of him, but they were doing the debrief of figuring out why did he last so long? And one of the partners in the firm said, well, he was often wrong, but never uncertain. Just makes total sense. It makes total so how, sense. So where does confidence come into that? Like, Well, in the workplace, confidence and competence are perceived as the same trait. So people who are highly competent but behave without confidence are perceived to be incompetent. And people who are highly confident can go years mm -hmm. before anybody discovers the truth. Right. So if you are competent, show up every day announcing to yourself and with your behavior announcing to everyone else that you know exactly what you're doing. I, I have a thing when, when we watch a movie, um, I love when a movie announces it's gonna be good in the first two minutes. Yeah. And you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that. You watch a movie and two minutes in, you're like, damn, this movie's gonna be good. Yeah. If you know you're good, announce your good with your behavior by giving answers, by proceeding with confidence. If something's wrong, fix it and move on. Don't run around apologizing for being wrong. Don't run around announcing that you're wrong. And another thing women have to really do to express confidence in the workplace is, I, I, 
I hate to say, I hate for women to be in a position of constantly monitoring themselves. That's not an advantage to anyone. But think about how you present your contributions. If you're going to say something, announce that what you're about to say has value with the way you're saying it. Don't open with, I might be wrong. I might be wrong, but shouldn't we let the client review this decision Essentially, they're looking for consensus. Yep. Inclusion. As as a starting point, an inclusion. Just like as a starting point before that's how the sentence begins. Yeah, and and they think that draws everybody in. They think that endears the group to them. Or it doesn't even have to be as damaging as I might be wrong. It might be, would everyone agree? Would everyone agree we need to choose the blue shirt for this campaign? Well, what if no one agrees and you're right? You've just created an uphill battle for yourself to defend the correct position. If you want to contribute, you simply say, here's what I think. And then you pause for just a beat. That pause is so important. For one thing, it lets everyone in the room acknowledge that someone just spoke and they look up from their phones. But the other thing is the pause slows you down. It stops you from accelerating through and lowering the power of what you're saying. If you want to have a much greater amount of authority, one thing that happens is that women are automatically discounted. Their contributions just are automatically discounted in the room. So women will lead with as much authority as they possibly can. They'll say, oh, I I worked at another company where we had this issue and I was on the team that discovered it and we found that the best possible thing to do in this situation is make sure that the client is on board before we go to print. (sighs) So over justification? How long ago did you stop listening? You know? And so it helps to announce your authority, announce it in 10 words or less. Right. I handled this at my last firm, and we need to get the client's opinion before we move forward. Right. I have authority from the past. Boom. Boom. That's it. I ran this issue at my last firm. This is my area of expertise, and here's what I think. You gain power by having power before you speak. Fake it till you make it. Even if you don't have the power, announce that you have power when you speak. And if you want your contribution to be really, really powerful, you say, here's what I think, and I'd like us to discuss it before we move on. Because... To force them to to acknowledge that... you did the, Absolutely. The yeah. And if you make the room discuss what your contribution is, now that's risk. That's ownership. That means that if that's a bad idea, everyone's going to attach it to you. But chances are it's a good idea. And you've taken ownership of it. But if you make them discuss a contribution when you make it, then two minutes later, when someone with a penis says the exact same thing, you can say, Oh, thanks, Bob, for bringing it back to my suggestion. Right. I'm glad we're, we're revisiting this. Right. Right. Take ownership of what you contribute. And by the way, this is held against women. Women are five times more likely than men to be labeled difficult in that? a performance evaluation. Well, it, you know, it's not because they're always complaining the cappuccino machine doesn't work. It's because, one, a woman even owning her space is often perceived as difficult. One of the things I talk to women about a lot is performance evaluations 
and they say, what do I do when I'm told a certain thing in a performance evaluation that I know is only because I'm a woman? And I say, you say, thank you. I appreciate that feedback. I'm curious if everyone in the department is held to that exact standard. Mm. Because that makes people reflect on what they're judging you on. And again, from the company side, I have a great exercise I love to do for companies. If you have written evaluations, if you're preparing notes on an evaluation, after it's all done, before you go deliver it to any employee or put it in anybody's HR file, change all the names to the opposite genders. Change everyone's name to the opposite gender and reread every evaluation. Uh. And see if it suddenly sounds ridiculous. Right. Because a lot of things that are told to women, people would find ridiculous if they had to say it to a man. Wow. So the so I tell women, you know, take ownership. One of the other reasons women are labeled as difficult is that going back two million years to hunting and combat, one of the other instincts men developed was hierarchy. In combat, you had to know who was in charge. You had to know who you took orders from. You had to know who took orders from you, or people died. Women were back at the campfire in a group, sitting in a circle. Forming consensus. Forming consensus. (laughs) There wasn't a sense of hierarchy. Women do not have an instinctive sense of hierarchy. There's a study that I refer to often where um, at University of Michigan, they took six-year-old boys. They put them in a room and let them play freely, unsupervised. And after an hour, separated them and said, okay, who was in charge? Who was most in charge? Who was least in charge? How in charge was each boy? Make a list. And every boy made a list. And all their lists were virtually identical. They knew exactly who in that room had the most power, who had the least power. So the same experiment was run with six-year-old girls. They took six-year-old girls and put them in a room, let them play freely for an hour, unsupervised, separated them, and said, make a list. Who was most in charge? Who was least in charge? How in charge was everybody? And the six-year-old girls didn't understand the question. They, they just, their response was, what do you mean? Right. We were playing. Nobody's in charge. Right. Yeah, there were no adults in the room. Nobody was in charge. We were just playing because girls don't have an instinctive sense of hierarchy. And this hurts women in the workplace in two really big ways. One, we don't acknowledge the hierarchy with our boss. If a boss gives an employee a task and says, uh, I need you to research A and B and tell me which is better. The employee goes away, comes back and says, looked into it, A is better. If the boss says, all right, we're going with B. If that's a male employee, he's gonna say, you the boss, <laughs> right? and leave. And if that's a female employee, she's going to say, oh, no, I don't think you understand. A is better. And then he'll say, I-, I get it, but we're going with B. And she'll say, no, here's the research. Look, here's all the pros and cons of A. Here's the pros and cons of B. And he says, yeah, but we're going to go with B. And she says, but you're wrong. She's trying to get to a better result. Yeah. Women are so focused on outcomes. Women are solely focused on outcomes, almost exclusively. And Strangely, that works against us because companies aren't set up to reward the people who get to the best outcome. If you look in society, who do we value more, the firefighter or the fire inspector? (laughs) Firefighter is a little... Yeah, one (laughs) puts out fires and one ensures fires never start in the first place. Now, which of those is more intrinsically valuable? 
the, the inspector who's going to prevent the fires from happening. Exactly. But if the entire system is built to reward the person who's putting out the fire, then there's going to be fires. And again, I tell companies, you better pay attention to who in your organization is preventing the fire from happening in the first place and figure out how to reward that person. And I tell women, if it's your natural instinct to prevent the fire from happening in the first place, keep doing that. That's so valuable. But when the fire starts, make sure you put it out. And it, it's a real, it's, we see it in so many areas of the corporate world where they're not doing anything to reward the people who are preventing damage, but they do extreme rewards for the people who do damage control. It's kind of like phrasing your mistake as a problem solved, like you did this damage control. Right, and you get rewarded for that. So if you're a company, if you don't figure out how to reward the people who are preventing fires, you're going to wind up with a lot more fires. Right, makes sense. So the first way that lack of hierarchy hurts women is not acknowledging that their boss is the boss. And I tell women, present your case, and then if someone is making a wrong decision, but it's their decision to make, you have to be willing to say, you the boss, and walk away. And I do this at corporations a lot, and they go crazy. They're like, please don't tell our employees not to disagree with the boss when the boss is wrong. And I say, then change your metrics. If someone is only going to be penalized for doing that, then I'm going to continue to tell her to do that. Right. So the other thing people have to remember is that if someone is higher than you on a ladder, they have a better view. In that A versus B situation, it might just be that the CEO of company B is on your board of directors and you are going to have to go with B either way. And your boss can't say that out loud. Your boss might be more angry about that than you are. So if you say A is better than B and your boss says, well, we're going with B, you have to be willing to say there might be something going on I don't know. That's not at my pay grade, as they say in the military. And so be willing to walk away from that situation. The other way that lack of instinct for hierarchy hurts women is we yield our place in the hierarchy in order to get the job done. We do work that is, quote unquote, beneath us because we just want to make sure everything moves forward. We're so focused on the outcome. If, if you are the you know, product manager in a, line, in a factory line and there's one place where it keeps getting bottlenecked, it might be the best thing you can think of to do to leap in there and keep help fill those boxes, do right, some of right, those tasks. Right. That, first off, that is not doing your job. That is doing the job of the people who work for you. If they can't do it, you train them, you counsel them, you correct them. If you have to, you can them. But you do not do their jobs for them. Because, one, that's stealing. You're you're being paid to manage. And you're probably being paid more than the person who's standing on the factory line. So when you go stand on the factory line, you're stealing that extra salary you're getting to manage. Right bigger problem is you've left a void in that leadership position that A, when management looks down from above, all they see is the hole you left there. They don't see you over there helping out with something else. And as long as that void is there, there's somebody who is going to be too happy to step in and fill it. So if you're a woman, you have to own your place in the hierarchy. When you're in charge, you have to accept, I'm in charge. You have to be willing to say to somebody who's disagreeing with you, I understand your position, 
my decision is final. And that's... Put the consensus aside. Yes! It is not your job to get your employees to agree with you. It's a good idea. You want to inspire and motivate people. The number one motivating factor for employees is getting a sense of accomplishment in their jobs. Figure out a way to give your employees a sense of accomplishment. Figure out a way to give them autonomy over what they do. But when you are in charge, own that place. You are not a member of the team. You're the captain of a ship. And that ship has to keep moving. So what's the best thing women can do for each other? I always say network, mentor, sponsor, and help each other out. And we all know what networking is. We're all told to find mentors. But actually, the most important word in that statement is sponsor. And sponsor means you speak for someone when they're not in the room. One of the things that has hurt women so badly is that no one speaks up for us when we're not in the room. The best thing that ever happened in my career as a lawyer, very early on, I was doing a lot of IPO work for one partner, and he needed me, and I was doing almost all of his deals. And then the firm had a task. It, it's technically law. It's called blue, the blue sky laws. Somebody has to update all the blue sky laws, which is all the individual states' securities laws. And they were in a partner meeting, and someone said, oh, we'll get Valerie to do that. And luckily, I had made myself valuable enough to the partner I worked for, and he was powerful enough that he said, no, I, I need her on my deals. We're going to have to find someone else. Well, the Blue Sky update was pure scut work. There was no value to it. It was not client billable. It was internally billable, which is less valuable billable work. There was no client interaction to it. It took you out of the, the mix for long periods of time. And so naturally, they just said, we'll have Valerie do it, like they did every other previous year with whoever the lowest ranking female associate was. Right. In fact, after the partner I work for said, no, she's not going to do that. I have her on too much important stuff. It took them 20 minutes to decide who to assign it to after that. Because the obvious answer wasn't, wasn't right there. Right. And mm -hmm. that means they had to come up with which male attorney. Yeah to assign that task to. And that was a hard decision to make. Right, much harder <laughs> than just, oh, have Valerie do it. Right. And that is sponsorship. That is the person in the room saying, I, this person is valuable. It's one of the reasons women don't advance. So we have to sponsor each other. We have to make sure we're speaking up for each other when someone is not in the room. And this is something companies have to be really aware of. Make sure someone is speaking up for the women who are high performers because they're not speaking up for themselves. That's a big part of it. But the other part is you look at how anybody gets a job or gets advanced in any workplace. It's because someone in that workplace is saying, is vouching, right. is saying this is the person who should be in that position. And we have to make sure that's happening for women. Women have to make sure it's happening for each other, and companies need to make sure it's happening for their high-performing female or equally performing female employees. That's the other thing that gets really frustrating. Average men advance, and exceptional women do. And I know people are very offended by that, but boy, is that the truth. Men fail up and women fail out. And we have to stop that from happening too. We have to make sure that everybody gets an equal opportunity and that the companies are focused on what is getting them to the best outcomes and reward the people who do that. 
So for women, we need to embrace quick decision-making. We need to speak and proceed with confidence. If we're wrong, we need to fix the problem and not go around announcing that we were the ones who were wrong. We need to own our place in the hierarchy. We need to acknowledge someone else being higher up in the hierarchy. And we need to make sure that we're speaking for other women when they're not in the room. And we need to make sure someone is speaking for us when we're not in the room. And all of that collectively is how we're going to ensure that women succeed in any workplace. Valerie, it's been really great having you come in here. It's been a total education. Where can people find out more about what you do? The things I've been talking about are all in a book. It's how women can succeed in the workplace despite having female brains. <laughs> and female brains is in quotes. It's tongue in cheek. Uh, that's available on Amazon. So how women can succeed in the workplace despite having female brains. And if people are interested in working with me, having me come to their company or their conference as a speaker, they can find me at speakhappiness.com. So speakhappiness.com. Go to the speaker page. The information about all of my talks and how to reach me is there. It's fantastic. Valerie Alexander, thanks for coming on the AMA Los Angeles podcast. Thank you so much, Joel. This was so much fun. You've been listening to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the American Marketing Association's Los Angeles chapter and to find out about upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This podcast was produced by Joel Metzger and Ice Box Logic.